he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and who he and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. As I mentioned before, Pastor John is still on a sabbatical, and um, while he's away, he asked his friends to graciously fill the pulpit. So we have one of his friends here, Pastor Peter Huang, who has joined us many times, and he's here once again to deliver the word. So please, let's welcome him with a round of applause. All right. Can you hear me okay? All right, good morning. It's great to, to be with you um, here once again. Um, if we haven't met before, my name is Peter, and as uh, Pastor Charles had mentioned, um, uh, yes, I am friends with Pastor John, and while he's not here, let me tell you a couple things about him. Uh, I'm, j- I'm just kidding. Um, but thanks for having me again. It's great to worship, you, worship with you. Um, today, I want to look at our text uh, from the Gospel of Luke and um, talk about how our faith calls us in a, calls us to a uniquely Christian way of relating to others. Right, so I want to talk about how our faith calls us to a uniquely Christian way of relating to others, both as a church and as individuals. And I think this message is relevant for all of us because none of us live in bubbles. We all live in community with each other. And that's, of course, you know, it's because we're, of course, social creatures. A lot of what we um, have in life, a lot of what we value, a lot of what we joy, enjoy in life is because we are in community with each other, right? Whether it's for emotional fulfillment, I think COVID-19 really brought this out, you know, after being locked down for so long. You know, I go to work in the city and it's clear, like, people want to meet people. People want to see people. It's like COVID never happened. Restaurants are full, bars are full. People want to see people. We want to hang out with our friends. We want to hang out with our family. And so on an emotional level, this is true about community, about relating to others, about connecting with others. But it's also true for even basic survival, right? I think about all the the frontline workers that have done what they needed to do during the pandemic. People who work at hospitals, the police, fire, EMT, even restaurant workers. And, you know, I think about the people who run our infrastructure. my brother-in-law told me this, and this is absolutely true. I looked it up. Did you know that New York City alone produces 12,000 tons of garbage in one day? In one day, 12,000 tons of garbage. Imagine if that whole system just stopped, how disgusting our city would be, right? None of this is automatic. People need to show up. People need to work. We all need to be there for each other. We're social creatures. This togetherness is as an essential part of who we are. It's an essential part of our existence. So again, I want to think about togetherness and community and relationships in a uniquely Christian way. And as we do, I want to use a word that shows up nine times in our text, right? It's some form of the word invite. 
And in Greek, that's the language that the Bible was originally, the New Testament was originally written in, in the New Testament, um, ancient Greek. The, the word there is kaleo, right? It's often translated to call, right? But the translation invite, given our story's context, does a good job of invoking the idea here where you're building bridges. You're extending yourself to someone else. You're making connections with people, right? Because if you really want to be with people and be in community, you need to, you know, to use the word in our text, you need to extend yourself. You need to extend invitations of sorts, right? So think about community, thinking about relationships in a uniquely Christian way. Let's see what Jesus has to say about it. And let's ask ourselves both as a church and as individuals, who are the people that we tend to invite into our lives? Who are the people we tend to invite into our lives? And how does the gospel, how does the good news of Jesus Christ, how does the fact that we're Christian change that? Right? And so to help apply what Jesus says to our own lives, let's look at our um, text today under three bullets. First, let's look at Jesus' context. Second, let's look at Jesus' critique. And finally, let's look at Jesus' call. Right, so first, let's look at his context. So coming back to our text, we see that Jesus went to dine at a house of a ruler of the Pharisees. That's how chapter 14 starts. And in verse 1, we see that it was on a Sabbath. Right? It was on a Sabbath. That's the seventh day of the week. It's a day of rest. And it's important to remember, we'll come back to this, but Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, right? And this was likely like a kind of meal that, you know, people enjoyed after Sabbath worship. And typically the people who were gathered there were a bunch of like pious, religious Jews, right? So there are a bunch of pious, religious people out there. And I want to key in on what Jesus says in verse 12, right? Because in verse 12, Jesus is talking to the host, the man who had invited all these people to his place to enjoy this meal after a Sabbath. This is what Jesus says to that host. He says this. He says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Right now, I'll mention as a sidebar, I heard a a sermon that brought out this point. Um, I don't think that Jesus is saying like literally don't ever throw dinners for your friends. Or don't ever throw dinners for your relatives, right? I don't think any of us are like sinning, like with Thanksgiving coming up. I don't think any of us are sinning if we invite our friends, our families, and our relatives and loved ones to Thanksgiving dinner, right? Or anytime we go to a wedding or anytime we get to a social get-together or anything. I think we're sinning if we invite people that we like, people who are close to us. Um, This was a translation of what scholars call a semitism. Anti-Semitism. Um, Jesus was probably speaking in Aramaic, right? It's a language. Um, he was probably speaking not Hebrew. Was, Hebrew is the, the language of the scriptures. He was probably speaking in everyday conversation in a language called Aramaic, right? And this is, a Semitism is an expression in Aramaic that is translated into Greek, right? But when Jesus spoke it in Aramaic, it would have made sense to the people listening, right? To the Jewish audience that he was talking to, this expression would have absolutely made sense. Like, for example, we say in English, um, it's not today, it's, it's a beautiful day today, but we say in English, if it rains a lot, it's, it's raining cats and dogs. Right, we use that expression. And we know when someone says it's raining cats and dogs, like the animals aren't literally falling down from the sky. But 
you know, imagine you know, a lot of us are Korean Americans here. A lot of us have Korean speaking parents. Imagine telling our parents that it's raining cats and dogs in Korean. They'd be like, what are you talking about, right? What are you talking about? Right? But in English, we understand what this means, right? So Jesus has these other semitisms. Like, for example, he says, when if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, right? I don't think he's literally telling us to take these scepters and pluck out our eyes if our eyes causes us to sin. No, he's making a point here, right? To be careful what you see. Be careful what you look at. Right? Or he says later in Luke chapter 14, actually, he says, he who doesn't hate his mother and father, wife, children, brother, or sister isn't worthy of me. Hate your mother and father. That would be a direct violation of the fifth commandment. No, he's saying your love for me must exceed your love for any other human being in this world. Right? So Jesus is making a point. He's looking around at this dinner and he's looking at the host and he's pointing something out. He's responding to something that's going on here. Right? And it turns out, this invitation to eat, this invitation to enjoy this Sabbath dinner wasn't just like hanging out at someone's house. Right? Remember, this was after Sabbath worship. You know, remember when I, I remember when I was younger, you know, especially when I was single, after church, you know, we might get together at somebody's house and you know, we'd order some Chinese food, watch a movie, play some games, I don't know. Right? You're doing something, you're, the, the vibe was, guards are down, you're just relaxing, you're just chilling with your friends. Right? But that's not the vibe of the kind of dinner Jesus was invited to. Right? Luke 14 takes place. Uh, Jesus had done most of his ministry in the northern region of Galilee. And in, by the time we get to Luke 14, he's making his way down to Jerusalem. Of course, Jerusalem is where he would end his ministry, his earthly ministry. And as he's making his way down towards Jerusalem, he's in this town. And in this town, word had gotten out about Jesus, especially in this religious community. Oh, there's a special guy here, special rabbi. He's drawing quite a crowd. He's doing some miraculous things. And the point is, when there's a prominent rabbi or a teacher that's visiting any town, especially someone as notorious as Jesus, the local religious leader knew exactly what to do on a Sabbath. After the Sabbath worship was over, he, as he's gathering these other religious pious Jews together, you invite a religious teacher like Jesus, right? So the vibe here wasn't like you're hanging out with your friends and ordering Chinese food and watching a movie, right? The vibe here is more akin to like an office holiday party, right? Where you're kind of having fun, but you're not, you know, you're, or drinks after work or a, a meal at a fundraising event, Right? You're kind of having fun, but you're not. You're, you're dressed up. You got your best face on. And you know that there are important people there, and you're sh- there to schmooze. You're there to network. You're there to, to make those connections. And hopefully down the line, as you make those connections, those connections become beneficial to you. Right? Just like Jesus said, you invite so that you expect down the line to be invited in return. Right? And this, this is actually, you know, it, it, it triggers basic human behavior, whether you're a Christian or not. When you first extend yourself, right, with the expectation that you're invited back again. It's, it's a basic human behavior. You know, I was at a, a Barnes & Nobles, uh, I think it was a few months ago, and I saw this book with an interesting title. Um, you've probably seen it too. It's a book called Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion by psychologist Robert Cialdani. 
right? It's a blue and purple book. A new edition had come out, and I did what any reasonable Asian-American man would do. I saw it in Barnes and & Noble's, and I went home, and I ordered it on Amazon. Anyways, I'm drawn to these kind of books because I'm always fascinated by, like, you know, normal, regular people who somehow rise to power, right? They rise to power, and they get, like, normal, decent human beings, like maybe you and me, if you think you're normal, you know? Like, maybe you, decent, normal human beings like you and me to, get, to do some crazy things, whether it's like dictatorships or it's like strange cults that kind of, you know, these people sell their possessions and, and do all these crazy things, you know. And, and part of me wonders, you know, if a dictator ever rose to power or if a cult ever came to be, you know, uh, would I ever join one? No, I'm too smart for that. But, you know, deep down inside, would I ever join one, right? So I pick up this book. And I'm curious. I'm curious. And in this book... Robert Cialdani, he lists what he calls levers of influence. Levers of influence. These are things that we subconsciously respond to. Right? Uh, these levers of influence have a, a sway in causing us to do what we do and decide what we want to decide to do. And the first lever that he calls out is called reciprocity. Right? I had to practice this a couple of times. It's a hard word to pronounce when you're up here in public, when you're speaking in public. Right? First, word is re- first lever is reciprocity. And of course, this, this idea isn't unique to Chaldani. A number of people have written about this principle. The reciprocity is this, where we have this instinct to try and repay another person for something that they've given to us. Like for example, I don't know how many times, you know, my wife and I, uh, you know, we went to H Mart with our kids. I don't know if you've experienced this. You know, I have four kids, I have a big family, right? I don't know how many times I went to H Mart with my kids and we see an old lady who could be my mom, right, cooking up some samples at the sample station, right? Sometimes these ladies are stingy, right? They see, like, this huge family with a big cart coming by, they're like, oh, gosh, another family here, right? But sometimes the lady's really generous. She gives me a sample. She gives my wife's a sample. And for each of my four little kids, she gives a sample, right? That's a lot of samples. And I leave there. I, I feel so heartless if I leave there without buying something that I just sampled, right? That's the, that's the power of reciprocity, right? We see it everywhere, right? And the author makes a point, certain like social fabrics and so, the integrity of cultures and societies and communities are created out of this principle of reciprocity, right? By extending yourself first, you're almost putting them in your debt, right? Because you know they have this instinct to want to pay you back, right? So Jesus is telling the host that's throwing this dinner or for any potential host that's out there, the, the main reason you would extend yourself in the first place is that you're expecting that return. You're expecting that return. So Jesus here at the Sabbath meal, he sees what's going on. Uh, the host and others like him would invite important people, people who had connections, people who could open doors for you, people who could create opportunities for you. And the expectation is you threw these dinners, you threw these banquets, you hosted these meals with the idea that down the line, that grace would be extended back to you, that you would essentially be repaid. These kinds of things were an investment towards a future, a better future for yourself. And that brings me to my second point, Jesus' critique. Jesus' critique. Now, I don't know if critique is the right word here, but, you know, if you notice, all my points started with a C, and that's the the best word that I could find, right? But essentially, Jesus is giving feedback on what the host 
should do. This is Jesus' critique. It starts in verse 13 to 14. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be paid at the resurrection of the just. So again, Jesus is not anti-networking. I don't think he's anti-getting together with friends. I don't think he's, you know, anti-getting together with family. Again, it's an extension of asemitism, right? An expression in Aramaic. But he's saying, right? There's a truth here, right? He is saying something. He's saying, when as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian, as a religious person who God loves, when you extend yourself, when you invite others into your life, there should be a pattern of generosity there. There should be a pattern of giving people invitations, people who can never repay you or never get you back in the future. There should be a pattern of generosity where you're not networking, where there are no politics involved. And I think about the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, and we, a lot of us know the story. Right? A, par- a Samaritan sees a Jew he doesn't know who's been robbed, who's been beaten, and he's left for dead on a dangerous road. And this Samaritan tends to him, houses him. He ensures his well-being at total cost to himself with no expectation of return. And Jesus says, this is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, in Galatians 5, this is Paul writing. This is one of the earliest documents in the New Testament. This is one of the earliest documents that made it into our New Testament canon. And in Galatians chapter 5, Paul writes this, that the whole law is fulfilled in one word. That you should love your neighbor as yourself. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, the community and the relationships that you create around you should be communities of love, of acceptance, of grace, of true friendship, where there's no expectation that whatever grace you extend to someone else will one day be repaid. Right? So the question that must have been going on in the host's mind and the question that might be going on in your mind is, why should we do this? Why is this? Why should the host do this? Why should any of us extend ourselves with no expectation of being repaid in the future? And to answer that question, we need to understand where Jesus himself was coming from when he gave this critique. And to do that, we need to keep in mind how Luke, the author of our text, has been building up to this point from verse 1 where the dinner starts, right? And let me just summarize from verse 1 to verse, um, to, uh, verse 7, right? I, I'm to verse 11. Um, two building blocks that Luke uses that have deep spiritual significance. These are deep spiritual truths that Jesus has in the back of his mind when he's giving his host this critique. And the two building blocks are, number one, Sabbath, and number two, humility, right? Sabbath, and humility, right? The first building block, as we see in verse 1, is that this happens on a Sabbath, right? Now, remember, the host here is a Pharisee, and for the Pharisees, these are religious purists. These are people who thought, hey, the Jewish faith is being compromised by, you know, outside influences. We need to go back to the scripture, and we need to reclaim what the true faith is. These are religious purists, and I think the movement started with good intentions. And for these 
Pharisees and for these pious religious Jews, they saw Sabbath as a law that needed to be kept. I thought it's funny that today we went through the fourth commandment in the Heidelberg Catechism, right? It's one of the big 10 commandments. And they saw observing the Sabbath as a commandment that needed to be kept. And this commandment, as with any law, you know, the, the, the Pharisees tended to regard any law as a weight that you needed to manage. It was a requirement that you needed to keep in order to stay right with God, right? And so they didn't just like gener- generically keep the Sabbath commandment. No, no, they had to make guardrails. They had to create traditions to ensure that anyone who's trying to observe the law is staying within the boundaries of the law. And I don't want to get too deep into it, but you know, one of the systems and the guardrails that they created in regards to the Sabbath was, well, Sabbath says don't work. Right? On the seventh day of the week, it's a day of rest, you shouldn't work. So they asked themselves, hey, what constitutes work? And from very early on, probably around the time of these Pharisees, they listed 39 activities that constituted work. And as long as you didn't do any of these 39 activities, you were within the guardrails. You were within the bounds of the law. You had a clear conscience before God that you were not violating the Sabbath. Right? So this is, this, is, this is the Pharisaic mindset when it comes to the law, when it comes to Sabbath observing. So we come back to the text in verse 2. It says, behold, right? Behold right? Whoa, look, look, something's happening here. Behold, there happened to be a man with dropsy. Uh, dropsy, I don't know, I don't even know what that is, but I looked it up. It's, you know, the, some of the, the notes, the commentary say it's probably some sort of swelling that this guy had in his body, painful swelling that he had in his body. And they were watching. They were watching. The Pharisees were watching. Jesus was a notorious healer. This man with dropsy comes in, Pharisees in their mind, you're not supposed to be healing on the Sabbath, bro, right? You're supposed to rest. But this guy comes in obviously needing healing. And they're like waiting and watching to see what Jesus would do. But of course, in Jesus' mind, he doesn't embrace the, the Pharisaic mindset. He doesn't see Sabbath as a weight. He doesn't see it as a commandment to, to, to stay clear, you know, in the presence of God with, it's clear in, in, in how Jesus talked about Sabbaths and he talked about the law all throughout his ministry. It's clear that he didn't buy that whole commandment weight mindset. And so he knows that they're watching. He knows that they're trying to catch him and he asks preemptively, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And it's such a poignant question because Sabbath in Jesus' mind wasn't just a day in the week where you were forced to rest. No, the Sabbath in Jesus' mind pointed forward to an eternal rest that we'll have in God. Read Hebrews chapter 4, and part of entering that rest means that all the things that are wrong in the world around you and all the things that are wrong inside of you are going to be made right where there's finally peace and there's finally rest. Richard Gaffin, he's a well-regarded theologian. He writes it like this, the weekly rest day faithfully kept by the church is a concrete witness to a watching world that believers are not enslaved in the turmoil of an impersonal, meaningless, historical process, but look with confidence to sharing in the consummation of God's purposes for the creation. Sabbath keeping is a witness 
that there does indeed remain an eschatological Sabbath rest for the people of God. A lot of big words in there, right? Let me summarize this in regular language. In the beginning, before sin entered into the world, this idea of Sabbath, this idea of eternal rest, about humanity working to finally come face to face in true intimacy with their creator. This was our ultimate destination from the very beginning, even before sin entered into the world. But now that sin has entered into the world, it's also a place before we enter that rest where all the wrongs in this world are made right, where everything wrong about us, like we just mentioned, are made right. And by observing the Sabbath, we are in a way expressing our hope in this reality. That no matter how random or unlucky or meaningless life might feel at the moment, we believe by faith that God has a good purpose for it all. And that good purpose will be realized when Jesus returns and he brings us all to rest. Right? So of course it's absolutely right. It's absolutely right. It's absolutely above the law for Jesus to heal this man on the Sabbath. Because this healing pointed forward to how Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, will one day, in an ultimate sense, make everything in this world right. And I promise you, for that man who got healed of his dropsy, he experienced firsthand what true Sabbath rest was about. So that's the first building block, that this happened on a Sabbath, that healing is significant. Second building block in Jesus' critique to his host is a posture of humility. The posture of humility. And Jesus illustrates this with what we call uh, the parable of the wedding feast in verses 7 through 11. Really, you know, there's another sermon in here, you know, just on this parable. But for our purpose, I want to go through it relatively quickly. After Jesus heals this man with dropsy, he notices that, you know, people who are invited to this dinner, they're they're kind of jockeying for position. Right? So typically, you know, the way this dinner looked was it's probably like, you know, in Koreans, we have this short table called a sang. Right? They're probably gathered around a sang. It's not like a table with chairs. It's gra- they're gathered around a sang, and they're not like, you know, we, we kind of sit cross-legged if we sit in a sang, mad, uncomfortable. But these guys probably recline. They probably had their, you know, on an elbow, digestive system works this way, legs spread out like this. Look like rabbits who are going to sleep. I don't know if you've ever seen rabbits going to sleep. But this is, this is the kind of scene here, right? But people are jockeying for position. The host sits at the head of the table, and people are trying to sit as close as they can to the host, right? And the idea is you're trying to distinguish yourself from everybody else. You're trying to assert, hey, I'm an important person here, right? I sit near the host. And for all the people that were invited, he tells this parable, and the gist of the parable is this, right? Don't presume anything about your status. Don't sit in the place of honor. Why? Because if someone more important to you than you comes, comes and shows up, and the host tells you, hey, this seat is for someone more important to you. How humiliating is that? How humiliating is that? Right? And you're going to be told to go down to the lowest place. You know, better to start at the lowest place and have the host call you up. Right? Then you'll be an honored in front of everybody else. And of course, this sounds very similar to the practical wisdom that you find in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 25, verses 6 through 7 which I'm sure Jesus had in mind. He says, do not put your, uh, yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. It is better to be told, come up here than to, put, <clears throat> than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. No one, especially kings, likes people who think they're all that, right? But verse 11 in our text 
is the key to understanding the deep gospel truth behind this wisdom. Verse 11 says this, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And I want to take a minute to, to bring the truth out of this statement, right? And to help bring the truth of this statement out, let me ask all of us here, why does God love any of us? Right? Why does God accept any of us? That's a classic question, you know, you know, as you know, I serve my, at my church, you know, I'm on the session of elders, and, um, you know, when we admit new members, um, you know, when we admit, like, candidates for membership into our church, you know, one of the questions we like to ask is, you know, if you were to die today, and God was there at the gate, and he asks you, why should I let you into my kingdom? What would you say? What would you say? And, you know, for most of us, even as Christians who have a grasp of things like justification by faith alone, right, we have this instinctive way, right, if God were to ask us why I should let you into my kingdom, don't we have this instinctive way of looking internally, looking at ourselves, right? Have I been good enough? Have I prayed enough? Have I gone to church enough? You know, I, I fell in sin for the second, third, hundredth time, same sin over and over again. Have I asked sincerely enough for forgiveness each time? Right. Or, you know, if God asks you, um, why should I let you into my kingdom? Maybe you have a more uh, millennial mindset. Um, yeah, because I'm made in your image. Of course I'm worthy, you know? Of course I'm worthy, right? Uh, millennials tend to think, right? But here's a problem. Either way, millennial or not, right? Our problem is we tend to look internally. And when we look internally, Right? In spite of what we say we believe, we're operating out of this notion that the Savior that determines whether or not we're worthy is ourselves. The arbiter, the measure of our worthiness is in what we do. It's in ourselves. It's what we do or what we didn't do. Right? When God asks you why I should let you in and you start looking into yourself, right, you are essentially exalting yourself. You are saying, this is why I am worthy. This is why I should be admitted into your kingdom. You operate in a way where the weight of my destiny is on me. It's something that I need to manage. And Jesus says, if you do this, if you do this, if you look internally, if you look at yourself, if you look at anything that you've accomplished as a reason why I should let you in, he says, you will be humbled. If you think you've got something you prove your unworthiness. And I heard this illustration. It's like um, you're getting ready for a wedding, right? But it's been like three days since you showered. So you're sweaty and you're dirty, but then you put on a tuxedo. And you think just because you're dressed in a tuxedo that you're ready to go to a wedding. Right? No, you need to be cleansed first on the inside. There's something fundamentally wrong with you before you even put on that tuxedo or that dress. So when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes so that you can see yourself clearly and you come to the conclusion, no, I am not worthy. I can't. I am a dependent creature. I have nothing on my own. And in utmost sincerity, you're plagued with this belief that I have nothing that I have to bring before you. I am begging for your mercy. Then you prove that you are worthy. 
then you prove, that, that then you will be exalted. Right? So the, the second building block of Jesus' critique in this parable is humility. So we had Sabbath and humility. That brings us to our third point, the call. Right? So now you take Sabbath, you take humility, and you have the recipe for a really profound gospel truth. And this is the gospel truth that Jesus had in his mind when he's telling his host. That you should invite the poor, the lame, the crippled. Right? And speaking of Sabbath, you know, you ever wonder, you know, why we come to church, to the house of the Lord, on a Sabbath? Like, why do we come to church on a day of rest? Right? Well, why is it on a day of rest we come? Did you ever think about this? You know, I had to think that part of it is because don't we as people have a tendency to, to value other people based on their station in life, based on how successful they are? You know, you know, most of us, well, I don't want to say for NCF, but, you know, most of the people that I know in my social network online, right, even if we see, like, a, a B-level celebrity, like, I don't know, someone that got kicked off on Bachelor in Paradise, you run into them in the city, oh, so excited, oh, can I take a picture with you? Post it up on selfie, wait for the likes, right? We get so excited when we see people like this, right? Um, I'm... I'm old and I'm dated. I, I don't know who the latest celebrities are. I just heard about Bachelor in Paradise at a recent lunch I had with my coworker, so that's, that's why I mentioned it. But even still, right, even if I don't have the latest gossip on who the B-level celebrities are or C-level or A-level celebrities are, I'm victim to this too, right? Evaluating, valuing people by their station in life, by how successful they are. Um, most of you guys know I work in finance. I work at a, a very large bank. Uh, you can look me up if you want to see, you know, what exactly I work, you know, this is being recorded, so I don't want to say, you know, but I went to a work event, and at that work event was the CEO of my company, bigwig, see him on TV all the time, right, and he was there, he was standing there, and I saw him, he was like, you know, within like a few feet of me, and I being the, um, the Asian man that I am, I just wanted to kind of skirt away and, you know, get to the hors d'oeuvres, right, but as I was doing that, he actually extended out his hand to me. And he shook it and he said, thank you for your work. I remember feeling so honored right, at that time. Right? We have a way of, of valuing people based on their station in life, based how, on how successful they are or, or based on how notorious they become in society. Right? But when we come to the presence of the Almighty, to the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords, he calls us to come to him in worship on the day where we cease. That's what Sabbath means, when we cease from everything we are and everything we do during the week. And maybe that's intentional, maybe because in God's eyes, none of that matters. None of who we are during the week, none of what we've accomplished, none of the promotions, none of the bank account balances, none of that matters. There's a pastor, a Presbyterian pastor named Andy Wilson. He writes this, The Sabbath calls us to stop trusting in our own performance so that we can receive God's gracious provision of spiritual rest in the gospel of his Son. It's in our state of rest when we are nothing, when we bring nothing, when you can't hide or, or compensate for your lack with your station in life or your achievements or what you've produced. It's in this state that God calls us to himself. He says, come to me, 
all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Right? It's when we have nothing. When we have nothing, he says that I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. Who takes of me shall not thirst. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why? Why? Is it because we're somehow more pure in our state of rest? No. No. Can I remind you, brothers and sisters, of what it means to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? You know, Luke especially, right, of all the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of all the gospel writers, Luke especially writes about how Jesus embraces the poor, the tax collectors, outcasts, sinners, women, Samaritans, Gentiles. What are these categories of people in Luke's time? These were the marginalized. These are the people on the outside. These were the unclean people, right? And you might not be this literally, but this is a picture of our spiritual reality, right? That we're called to embrace, right? That we're called, you take away all the things that you are during the week, and this is who you are. Jesus says you are poor, you are unworthy, you are crippled, blind, and lame. Yet, yet, you who are far off are being brought near. You who are once in the darkness are being brought in to marvelous light. You who were once dead in your sins and your trespasses are made alive in Christ. You are born again into a new life. Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, this is not just a checkbox we, we, we check off on a religious affiliation. I just, I thought, you know, my kids got, you know, Gene, thanks for giving my kids with the Jesus coloring book. It says religious coloring books. It, it's Christianity is not just a, another religion that you check off. If you are in Christ, you are legitimately a new creation. Something legitimately has happened to you. Or you who were once dead are made alive in Christ. And all this is a gift from God. It's not the result of anything that we've done. It's something to be received by faith. And if Christ is in you, if the author and the sustainer of all life is in you, he says, do not fear. I am with you always. You have rights to me as an adopted child does to a father. Wake me up at 3 a.m. for a glass of water. And one day, there will be a resurrection of the just. And Jesus says, by virtue of what I have done for you, I will welcome you into true rest, into true Sabbath, where there will be no more tears. I think, you know, I think it's funny, not funny, because I do it too. We're so enamored by like chrome things and shiny things and gold things. And then you read Revelation and God says that the pave, pavers on his streets are made out of gold, right? We pay so much for gold. Gold is asphalt in the kingdom of God. And so hopefully it's clear why Jesus says what he says to our hosts in our final two verses again, verse 13, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. The world networks. Let's close with this. The world networks. Anyone can throw a banquet expecting 
to be repaid. You know, it feels good to be invited to, to rub shoulders with and be in with the, the people who are climbing up, the people who've achieved something. It feels good to be part of a church where your circle, circle of friends are people who are like you, talk like you, smart like you, fun like you. But Jesus is telling us this, understand who you are. Understand who you are and how the grace of God has invited us who are unworthy into a covenant relationship to him. He's given us access to a kingdom as a family heir in spite of who we are. And finally, you know, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. Jesus is saying, show me how much you believe this. Show me how much you believe in me and my love for you. Show me how much you trust in me to look out for you and provide for you. Show me how much you believe in that resurrection of the just, that it's not just some far-off abstract thought, but it's a reality that you have a true anchored hope in. And he says, go as a church. Go as individuals. Go as circles of friends. Look out into the world. Look out into the communities. Look outside, just outside the boundaries of this church and love your neighbor as yourself. Invite people in who are not like you, who might take from you and you have no hope of them ever repaying you back. Give of your time, your money, and your resources for you will be paid at the resurrection of the just. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, these are...